This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. It's an edgy time in America. The January 6th committee's report will be out soon, unveiling a look at one of the darkest days in American history. A key lesson of this investigation is this. Our institutions only hold when men and women of good faith make them hold, regardless of the political cost. That was Liz Cheney at the conclusion of the committee's hearings. There are warnings that more violence could happen on the second anniversary of the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. And the right-wing extremists who supported the attack could strike again. This week, the Department of Homeland Security warned of possible attacks against the LGBTQ, Jewish, and migrant communities from some of those same extremist groups. Twitter is melting down, with its CEO Elon Musk reinstating the accounts of some of the far-right provocateurs who were banned from the social media platform. Some of those accounts got the boot for their support of fraudulent conspiracy theories that fed the insurrection. Meanwhile, in Washington, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy of Bakersfield is moving closer to becoming Speaker of the House. But to do so, he has to placate some of the most conspiratorial members of the Republican Party, giving voice to supporters of QAnon conspiracy theories. You have to listen to everybody in the conference because five people on any side can stop anything when you're in the majority. But we have to speak as one voice. We will only be successful if we work together or we'll lose individually. Our guest today is familiar with all of those circles. Denver Riggleman is a former Republican congressman from Virginia. He was once a member of the Conservative Freedom Caucus of the Republican Party in Congress, and he voted with Donald Trump 92% of the time. But he has broken with both the Republican Party and Trump. After he lost his bid for re-election in 2020, the former military and intelligence analyst was asked to help the January 6th committee, where he analyzed the texts call records, and other online activity of hundreds of people suspected to be involved in the attack on the Capitol. He explained what he found in a new book called The Breach. I spoke to him this week from his home in rural Virginia, where he owns a liquor distillery. He'll be in the Bay Area Wednesday for a book reading at Book Passage in Corte Madera. I started by asking about the January 6th committee report. Over the past few days, there have been stories that some of the members are at odds about what the focus of the final report should be. I asked Riggleman what he thinks should be the focus. Well, it's it's an interesting question. The first thing I think I would want to tell people, the committee's not a monolith, right? There was a lot of, you know, competing ideas about what was happening. But since I was in the committee, my guess is, is that when they're talking about concentrating on Trump, they're talking about the gold team. So the gold team is one of the, the five major teams or the six total teams that were supporting the committee. And the gold team concentrated on Trump and his inner circle. So for recency, knowing Trump's state of mind, the legal framework, who there might have been talking to rally planners or alternate elector planners or legal strategists or maybe even linked to the people on the ground themselves, uh, that was the goal team just looking at Trump and the Trump team, but Trump's state of mind and the legal strategies around it. That seems to be what they're concentrating on. And for recency, for what's happened on January 6th, that is very important. But I would humbly submit, I have 20 years of counterterrorism background. When you're looking in the future, 
predictably, I think some of the other teams are much more important than Trump's state of mind or what Trump did that day. And I think it's that second and third tier and how they actually command and controlled or coordinated that day. So the red team, the red team concentrated on the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers and other right wing extremist groups and day of how they coordinated type of weaponry they might have had, who they talked to. Right. The green team was follow the money. They're the ones who looked at the funding of that day and also beforehand and how much money was made on Stop the Steal and some of the groups that profited off of that, the grifters and those who weaponized or monetized these conspiracies. And by the way, I think the green team is the most important. I think follow the money is. Then you had the purple team, which was online and digital radicalization. How did that actually happen? How did you radicalize that many people? And there is some real crossover with the green team and a little bit with the red team. But I think the purple team looking for the future and how online radicalization works on social media maybe is more important predictably also. Then you had the blue team. The blue team looked at law enforcement and national security failures that day, which I believe for me, since I deployed in 9-11, I think that is also very important. Even though obviously we're not going to blame law enforcement, we can blame bureaucratic inefficiencies, incompetence, right? And just a general lack of intelligence communication, standard operating protocols, right? That were happening that day. So we have also the orange team. The orange team is sort of about foreign interference, right? They're the ones who are looking at what foreign entities might have been either profiting or amplifying those type of messages. So when you look at the teams other than gold, I think for the future, trying to stop the next January 6th and preserving democracy, they might be more important in a predictive way than just the gold team and Trump himself and his activities that day. They want to talk about expectations from the committee's report. And, and of course, I'm thinking about the last high-profile special committee report we watched unfold, the one led by Robert Mueller into the uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election. Democrats, as you recall, put so much emphasis and hope that that would lead to some sort of punishment for Donald Trump. And also thinking that, you know, days after this report's released, Republicans are going to take over the House and this committee will disappear. What should Americans expect to happen after this report is released? Sadly, it's always going to be up to the voters. A congressional investigation is a public trust. It is not uh, law enforcement. So there's there are limited authorities. There is some uh, argument or discussion about whether there should be criminal referrals. I will humbly submit to the audience that, that doesn't matter. The DOJ and FBI already know what they know. And hopefully there's information sharing going on between the congressional investigative teams and the DOJ itself. So when you say it doesn't matter, it means... You, uh, clarify that. You're, you're referring to the fact that the DOJ is already uh, doing their own investigation. When I say it doesn't matter, it's not it doesn't matter that there's criminal referrals or there's criminal charges. It doesn't matter if Congress actually, I would say, drafts a criminal referral because the DOJ and FBI are already working on it. So thank you for clarifying that. So I think what you're going to see first, if, if you see any indictments or any sort of criminal pathways, I think it's going to be Georgia. There's going to be other things that are happening. Federal indictment, I think, is tough, you know, and I think that's why I'm so interested uh, other than Trump. This is bigger than Trump to me. January 6th was just a test run, right? January 6th was just a, you know, it was very successful for those individuals who monetized or weaponized those type of conspiracies and that crazy. But I do believe the American public needs to, to, it's not that they need to be disappointed. I just don't think it's going to move as fast as they think it is if there are federal indictments that come to Trump or other people that are around. Mm. And I think the expectation is, is that the voters have already seen that Trump is incapable, either incompetent or uh, purposefully fraudulent in some of his activities and, and that he should not be sitting you know, in the uh, Oval Office ever. Well, let's talk a little, little bit about the, the 
the test run aspect of this. Um, we're recording this a day after Oathkeeper's founder, Stuart Rhodes, was found guilty of seditious conspiracy, which is very rarely used, tied to his role in the January 6th attack. You write in your book, quote, I am a full-blooded redneck. My father's side came from a rambling ravine in the mountains of West Virginia. My mom's people were from Northern Virginia in the Pennsylvania woods. The road I took also gave me a deep understanding of the people who attack Capitol Hill. I've known them all my life. In fact, if it weren't for a few turns, I might have been one of them. So why did these people attack the Capitol and why would they do it again? You know, there's a deep-seated belief, you know, Stuart's a former veteran too, like myself, right? Mm -hmm. There's a religious aspect to this also. I think you almost get wrapped up in your own importance, right? Or sort of that you are the guy who's fighting good against evil. You're the person who has the background to do that. But you also have certain people that take advantage of individuals like that. You know, you talk about uh, TV evangelicals, right? You talk about people who pass the collection plate. I think people like Stuart Rhodes are very, very charismatic to their followers, but also um, they're talking the good against evil sort of Christian nationalism push towards a new type of government based on biblical principles rather than the awful globalist, which, you know, it's just a cover term for Jews. So I think um, looking at that, being raised Mormon, you know, being raised very, very religious, being raised to say that it's faith, not facts, right? It's always faith. I think that's what you have is that I think a lot of these individuals were easily persuaded, thought that they were actually trying to, they were saving the country. And then you had people like the Stuart Rhodes and the Enrique Tarios for the Proud Boys and other right-wing extremist groups that were able to take advantage of that. So when you look at me, somebody who was raised the way I was, I will tell you this, when I was in my teens, I honestly was taught and thought I was a warrior for God. Mm. And that's why I brought that up in the book, The Breach, is that there's something deeper here. You know, we're talking about Proud Boys and Oath Keepers that are racists or nationalists or militants, but you also have this almost religious belief that they are here to save the country. And that's a toxic brew. And I think if you actually believe you're doing the right thing, you're you're a warrior for God. You've girded your loins for this battle. I think that uh, a lot of people could have gone down that road pretty easily. And I'm not trying to be brutal. I, I love freedom of religion. I'm just letting you know, I think that's why I could have been one of them. And, and this wasn't uh, some band of yahoos either, as you write, based on the, in, on the uh, analysis uh, you've reviewed. You've compared them to a foreign terrorist group, uh, the, the kind that you analyze when you're in the military. You wrote that they are, quote, much more organized and well-connected than we'd ever imagined. They have a robust organizational messaging plan to create constitutional chaos based on a conspiratorial fantasy. This is a domestic terrorist threat, uh, you're saying. How should the federal government take them on and dismantle this threat? And are they doing this? Here's the issue. There's so many problems with social media. There's so many echo chambers. There's so many ways to push out hate and to weaponize it, and to monetize it, and to metastasize it. You know, get, it, it's, it's metastatic, right? It, it just spreads like wildfire. Um, I think there's so many easy ways to do that, that you lose track of how many different platforms these people are planning on. So the federal government is really incapable of tracking all of the different chat rooms. Joe, you got Signal, you got Telegram, you got WhatsApp, you know, and these encrypted apps for normal law enforcement, they're not going to be able to see into them. They're, they're just not. And so, and I think, so what you have to have, I think is you have to have a private public partnership or you have to make some really tough decisions on whether you deplatform people. Because when you deplatform people, based on my background, 
based on if you take somebody out that's a central hub to communications to all these groups, you lose it. And when you deplatform them, they go to other encrypted apps or other areas and they could even further radicalize themselves. So there's you got to make some really tough decisions. And right now, the federal government is not capable of tracking all of these different avenues or threat avenues in the digital ecosystem. So I'm not trying to scare people. I'm just saying they're incapable. Uh, they're they're going to always going to be behind technology in the domestic space from those who can actually spread this. And the money is so big in the disinformation push. It is so large, Joe. I can't, I, I don't know if I can emphasize enough how much money can be made on fantasy, ignorance, uh, and insanity. And uh, I think that's going to be a huge challenge. I, I do think the information war is the new forever war. And I, and I, and I think it's going to be a constant battle, not only with the government looking at the threats in an open source way, because the First Amendment is very powerful and we love that. But the other thing is, do we have enough private groups that are able to track hashtags and memes and coded language that can actually be a predictive or, or an upstream indicator of violence? After a quick break, I'll ask former Republican congressman and former Trump supporter Denver Riggleman what it would take for the GOP to move beyond Trump. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. You were one of the few Republicans who openly spoke out against QAnon. And going back to your religious upbringing, your, mo- your own mom criticized you after you spoke out against QAnon. She wrote, uh, you, the, the, after she, she texted you and said she, she was, quote, sorry you were ever elected after you ripped QAnon. And the stuff that they, these, these folks are saying is, is, is insane. But as you write in the book, even Ginny Thomas, the wife of uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, we're sharing it with the White House. What are your concerns about QAnon's power going forward? And what what is the source of that power? And what could it trigger? You know, it's um, maybe one of the most personal questions, right, Joe? You know, because uh, the, the power of QAnon here in the 5th District of Virginia, which is a 65% rural district, right, when I was there, the power of QAnon to people in, in, in I would say, evangelical organizations is extensive. And, and whether you rebrand it as New World Order or globalism or the storm, you know, in any of that hogwash, right? Or where you switch Save Our Children, which was a which was like a QAnon coded language phrase for Democratic pedophile groomers who like to harvest children for adrenochrome. And you change that to groomers or you change that to whatever. That baseline QAnon sort of sticky bomb of conspiracy theories has inundated the entire GOP. And so when you look at my mom, all the way up to Jenny Thomas, they believe right in this good against evil, this this messianic conspiracy theory that the apocalypse is coming and they have to fight for it. And when I saw the text messages, when I broke out all the text messages like Jenny's, I was absolutely stunned at the allusions to this is the final battle, right? This is this is God against Satan. Um, And that is where I think people need to understand that. I, it's really difficult. These are people that would stop and help you change a flat tire, right? These are a lot of these are good people who all of a sudden believe that me, who was called the Tolv, the Antichrist, the general of the Sodomite armies, that I was changing the sexual orientation of children, 
that I was, I was, I don't know if you know this, Joe, I was laundering money for George Soros through my distilleries. I was also accused of that, right? I was called as, I was in a pejorative, I was called a secret Jew that I was working for the Rothschilds and Soros. And then I was called the worst thing of all time. The worst thing you can be called is a Republican. Are you ready for this? A secret Democrat. Oh, yeah. my goodness, right? Once that happened, all of that stuff that I just told you gets nested under secret Democrat as a Democrat who's an evil globalist. So the text messages, which I still think the 27 text messages to and from Mark Meadows are the most important in the Meadows text messages for Jenny. I have been sorely disappointed that it hasn't, we haven't been more aggressive in that, but I have stayed aggressive. And that's why I wrote the book is I think the data belongs to the American people, but they also need to see that there are professional analysts who can look at this a little bit differently uh, than a congressional in- investigation. Even though that congressional investigation was successful, I give them a B plus, right? I still believe that there's a lot more to see uh, and a lot more to learn about January 6th. So uh, let's talk about politics now, because, I mean, folks, uh, our listeners should should know that or maybe unfamiliar with you, that you were a member of the Freedom Caucus, the most conservative caucus in the, in, in the House, uh, voted with Trump 90 percent of the time. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, our, our fellow Californian. He's top Republican in the House, got the inside track to become the speaker. You work with him here in the House. What are his strengths and what are his weaknesses? Because you know, many of us here in California, we've watched McCarthy rise through from the young Republicans through the state legislature, and we often wonder why and how he's changed. I mean, he used to be very moderate. Someone reach across the aisle. What tell us about McCarthy? Strengths, weaknesses, and why the change? First of all, I mean, he's a guy who's easily drunk on his own bathwater, right? I mean, that's I don't think I'm going to sleep tonight thinking about that image. But go ahead. <laughs> well. And I, but his strength is his weakness. His strength is, is that everything McCarthy does is based on polling and how how it affects fundraising. That's it. So there's no moral sort of straight line, no moral compass, whether it's the right thing for the country doesn't matter, right? Whether, you know, he all of a sudden will become very religious or he's not really religious, or he'll say different things to different people to get them to go along on his side. And he tries to glue that together to say McCarthy is stupid would be ridiculous. He is not stupid. McCarthy wouldn't be where he was if he's stupid. I think he's very intelligent, but his strength of the charisma of, of the friendly backslapping guy really is just hidden and he's backslapping and being friendly because he wants you to vote for him and he's going to do say and do anything you need him to do to get your vote. What does the polling say? If the polling says that Trump is still liked by 70% of the electorate on January 11th, 2020, and on January 9th or whatever date, he said that Trump was at fault and two days later... He's belly crawling to Mar-a-Lago to lick the boots of Trump, right? That just means that the polling said that he had to support Trump so he could get elected. That's it. As we alluded to earlier, you were one of the few Republicans who openly spoke out against Donald Trump. The reaction to, to Trump's uh, presidential campaign <laughs> announced earlier this month has been kind of one big shrug, and that's from Republicans. But what would it take for Republicans to move on from Trump, and who would they move on to? The only way that they'll move on from Trump is that their specific fundraising and polling in those districts move away from Trump in a significant way. That's it. There's no other no other reason. So if you're looking at, say, Virginia 6 here, which is probably R plus 15, I don't know, right? If the committees, if the local Republican committees are still flying their Trump flags, it's very hard for that congressman to move out of that Trump lane. It's almost impossible. When you look at the latest polling, you're still seeing Trump, uh, as far as the nomination is concerned, 
as the presumptive nominee. I think it had Trump at 45, DeSantis at 30. So even if it's a big shrug, it doesn't matter because it's about the specific districts and also those big Senate districts. You're talking about Oklahoma, you're talking about Texas, right? You're talking about these massive state land masses with senators that are very, very conservative. It's really difficult to get out of that, Joe. And I'm not trying, again, I'm not trying to be poo-pooing anything, but to me right now, I think it's probably still better 50-50 shot that Trump would be the nominee in 24, even with the collective shrug. All right. Thank you so much for being on It's All Political on Fifth and Mission. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Denver Riggleman for being on the podcast today. His book is called The Breach, and he'll be reading at Book Passage in Corte Madera on Wednesday. A big shout out to the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember... No matter what you do with your bathwater, it's all political on Fifth and Mission.